Um, we're going to continue our Living Well series from Proverbs. And this, this week, we're going to look at the subject. I think it'll go up. Yep. Be careful what you drink. And uh, I hope that you will meet with God in talking about this. You might find it a slightly unusual approach. Uh, bear with me, this isn't a temperance talk. Not that, there's anything, not that there's anything wrong with a bit of temperance, but uh, that's not where we're going in the end. So just as people settle down, could you turn, if you've got a Bible or you're looking on your sort of iPhone or something, uh, Proverbs 20, we're going to read one verse from that and then we're going to go to Proverbs 23. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 1, is a sort of text behind what we're doing. We found this series, by the way, just while you're finding that, really God has used it, I think, to speak very quite, quite significantly into our lives as we looked at very basic principles from God's word, wisdom from above, wisdom from God applied to our lives. And, and this is one, verse 1 of chapter 20, wine is a mocker. And beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. And then in chapter 23 and verse 29, you get the feeling that the writer does quite know what he's talking about. Let's read this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas. Lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you'll say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so that I can have another drink? (laughs) So Proverbs has quite a graphic insight into drunkenness. Excessive drinking of alcohol. Now actually... This does need to be addressed in our society. And actually, it's not a new problem. As you can see, this was written thousands of years ago, and it was a real issue then, and it is a real issue still today. In fact, because we are, despite what we feel, we are better off than we used to be, probably a few decades ago, actually, a lot more money is spent on alcohol, and people do drink too much at every level. Wealthy people and poor people, lords and louts, all drink too much. Highly educated, poorly educated, old and young, male and female. In fact, in our culture, everyone seems to assume that drinking too much is the way to celebrate or to commiserate if someone has had some bad news, to cheer yourself up if you're a bit low, To have a good time, if you want to relax and lose your inhibitions, you drink. You get plastered, bladdered, whatever the latest phrase is. That is what you do. And you get it through the media, you get it in life. As I say, every level of our culture seems to react that way. 
But actually, drinking excessive amounts of alcohol is, frankly, bad for you. It's bad for your health, it's bad for what you do, and it's bad for society and communities. 350 years ago, Matthew Henry wrote this, Drunkenness, which pretends to be a sociable thing, renders men unfit for society. I think that's true. Drunkenness, which pretends to be a sociable thing, renders men or women unfit for society. There's actually a very high cost to drunkenness and too much drinking of alcohol. We can huff and puff about immigration, all the rest of it, but the main overcrowding in our A and E uh, departments, in our main hospitals, this is an actual fact, the main reason they are overcrowded and stacked up is with alcohol-related problems, particularly at the weekend. So at the weekend, A and A departments, if you talk to anybody who is on an ambulance crew or even police, they will say that the majority of what they get involved in at the weekend is a result of excessive, unwise use of alcohol. And so in one way or another, it's a terrific strain even on our health and emergency services. We all know about car accidents brought on by it, fights, disputes, domestic violence, broken relationships, rapes, unwanted pregnancies financial ruin and long-term illness. It isn't good news, excessive drinking. And it's always struck me as a bit strange that it is so acceptable in our society. Um, It has always struck me as a bit strange. When I was at university, I had uh, quite a lot of friends. I had two groups of friends. It was quite nice to have different groups of friends. And we're going back a bit here, late 60s and early 70s. And I had a group, I actually was in a a flat with three guys who weren't Christians and two of them were heavily involved with a rugby club. And they were very macho guys, big rugby playing guys. And I I did, uh, my my subjects were English and history and the arts, so I had a lot of arty friends who were hippies and they were really into taking cannabis and drugs uh, and LSD, some of them. But the rugby guys were really into getting drunk every weekend. And I remember observing the two groups, which I did mingle with. Um, and the drunk guys were horrible when they were drunk. They would come in, they'd be loud and abusive. They punched holes in the doors in my flat. They were sick all over the toilet and didn't clean it up. And I got involved in trying to clean it up. They would shout and loud, you couldn't calm them down. It wasn't very nice. They might be cheery, but they were still scary. Now, all my hippie friends were very relaxed and laid back. I found them staring at the wall for half an hour. (laughs) Honestly, I've come out of my room and they're staring at the wall, they're still there an hour later. Oh, man. (laughs) Like that. And there was no threat or anything. Now, I'm not making a case for getting stoned on cannabis. (laughs) I'm not. Because actually, if you want to be serious, some of them drove cars in an absolutely crazy way when they were high, and it was scary. They went round the car park and banging into other cars. And I, we had one guy jump through a window because he thought he could fly, and we had to take him to A&E. So I, actually, it was pretty scary what they did to themselves, but as people socially, they, were, you know, they weren't that... It was quite pleasant being in their company in sort of crazy sort of way. And yet drunkenness is so acceptable and actually it was so unpleasant. And so I think our society is mad. I think it's wrong. 
Drunkenness is no way to cope with life. And the Bible isn't naive. It's, it's not uh, as though God's a prude. He knows what goes on. He watches what goes on. And we're going to talk through this subject, two categories in the next half hour. We're going to talk about foolish drinking, and we're going to talk about wise drinking. So let's talk for a moment about foolish. And it won't be a surprise to say we're starting with the realities of drunkenness. Why is drunkenness, it is if you know your Bibles, quite often highlighted as a sort of symptom of serious sin? Well, I think drunkenness, from God's perspective, is like adultery and prostitution. People think they're personal sins, that it's all about you and it's your own uh, choice and if you do do your heart self some damage, so what? But actually, they are far more serious than that because they affect far more than the personal alone. They actually undermine communities. Drunkenness and its extreme alcoholism impoverishes families and breaks families up. They ruin communities. And all of these, adultery is the same, so is prostitution. And they're ones that come up a lot in the Bible because God sees them as very destructive, much wider than just the person concerned. Old and New Testament warn us of some of the effects of excessive drinking and drunkenness. We're just going to do these fairly quickly. Here's one, Proverbs 23. Waste and squandering your resources and impoverishing you. Do not join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Excessive drunkenness, actually any excessive dependence on a chemical, drugs as well, will impoverish you and cause you a waste and squander your life and your resources. Jesus, when he's writing, uh, when he's speaking in Luke 21, warns of the sort of escapism associated. Look at this. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and anxieties of life and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Now the day is the day of judgment. And what Jesus is saying is these things keep you in a false fool's paradise, an escapism, and you don't face up to God and the real issues of God. And if you are prone to be dependent on alcohol and drunk, and that is one of the things that's happening. You're not facing up to something. That's how Jesus puts it in that case. Later on in Romans, it says this, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension and jealousy. Drunkenness linked there with sexual immorality... And with fighting and strife. Beer is a brawler. We read it earlier in in, uh, Proverbs 20. Here's a a very vivid bit from Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Drunkenness makes people foolish and exposes them in all sorts of ways, and other people enjoy mocking them and seeing them exposed. It leads to all sorts of belittling uh, ways. And here's a warning from Proverbs again, Proverbs 31, that drunkenness is serious in leaders. It's not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. People who are, have responsibility and leadership who are alcoholic or alcohol-dependent, will tend to lack judgment. 
They will get distorted in their values and deprive the oppressed of their rights. Actually, in the Bible, God is very straight about spiritual leaders not being prone to drunkenness. And it's very, very strong. In Leviticus 10, there is an incident which we can't turn to where, because of time, where Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who are meant to be the high priest with a hugely privileged position, they go and offer what's called strange fire before God. They do something they're not supposed to do. They abuse their position as uh, priests. And fire comes out from God's presence and destroys them, just burns them up. And then immediately afterwards, there are, it's very clear that they were probably drunk. That is the clear implication because within a few verses, there are very clear instructions. And it says that priests were not to drink wine and other fermented drink when they were serving at the tent of meeting because they couldn't distinguish between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. Very straight. So you don't come into my presence drunk, says God. You can't distinguish between the common and the uncommon. And there's this a massive judge. It's like a moment, almost like when Ananias and Sapphira are killed in the New Testament. It's setting down a marker right at the beginning, Aaron's sons, right at the beginning of this age, or in that case of the tabernacle, just like, and God says, you don't mess with me. And, and you know, I am not having you, in Ananias Sapphira's case, lying to me. In the case of Nadab and Abihu, you don't treat my things lightly. You, you discern the difference between the common uh, and the holy, and you don't do that. And in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy 3, one of the qualifications for an elder is not given to drunkenness. And a deacon, not indulging in much wine. It's very specific. It's more down-to-earth than we often like to be. It's very clear that spiritual leaders who cannot control themselves in that area probably disqualify themselves because it will undermine their judgment. It will actually make a mockery of their privileged position as, rep, as God's under-shepherds and doing his work. So drunkenness is not wise for many reasons, but I think you can add one more. I think it is a real issue in spiritual warfare. I think if we get drunk, if we allow ourselves to lose control through drink or other drugs, we are opening ourselves up to demonic attack. Honestly, that's one of, thing, one of the things you can do. I'm not saying it happens every time, everybody's drunk, but I think you can. And I'll give you a brief reason for it, to try and give you a bit of substance to it. Drunkenness is specified as one of the works of the flesh that is directly opposed to the desires of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's almost like it's one of the counter things. We're going to see that in a more positive way before we finish this morning. It's one of the counter things to being filled with the Spirit. It's almost drunkenness is an opposite in a way. It's one of the sins that darkness can use to bring people into bondage. It really can. And I think it's quite unwise for Christians, for believers, to get drunk. I say that to young, old, male, female, whoever you are. I think it's very unwise. I think it would be in the same category as dabbling in the occult. I think you are in danger of opening yourself up. In danger of opening yourself up to something of darkness. You see, sin always is deceptive. It always is. It, 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 it was in the... Uh, Garden of Eden, that it looks good, it looks fun, it looks all right, it looks as though God's a bit of a spoil sport, and Eve, you know, if you only to do this, and you go for it, and then there's trouble, there's destruction. 
And, and that's true of all sin, but that is particularly, I think, one of the aspects of drunkenness that you pick up in the Bible. So what's the answer? Let's talk about wise drinking. Well, you might be surprised, after what I've just said, to know that the Bible's solution is not total abstention from alcohol, not as a general rule. Now, churches and Christians down through the centuries have, particularly more devout Christians, probably evangelical Christians in recent centuries, have tended to be strong advocates of teetotalism, of no alcohol. And you can see why, and there is a common sense angle to that, that it is better to abstain from alcohol than to get drunk and compromise. And if you can't control your intake for various reasons, they may not be personal, they may be social, that you find it very difficult to say no in company, then the best approach is to be abstaining. And I actually think, to be honest, that in our culture, people do sort of accept if you don't drink. They do accept it. So if you have a, a sort of like, no, I'm, I, either I'm driving or you're not driving, I just don't do it, I just drink uh, non-alcoholic, just have uh, something that's not alcoholic. If you have a sort of complete, um, as it were, self-imposed thing like that, man, people will often respect it. And that is probably safer than compromising in this area. Having said that, the fact is that the Bible doesn't require that of you. But I think you can make that as an intelligent, wise decision, spiritually wise. Actually, Israel was a wine-producing country. And in the Old Testament, wine presses, which are overflowing with new wine, are a symbol of God's blessing. They're used as a very positive picture. And even in Proverbs, which we're reading, wisdom herself sets her table with good wine on it. You can read that in Proverbs 9, in verses 2 and 5. So wine is part of wisdom's feast. It's obviously, again, a, a metaphor, but it's clearly put in a good light, if you like. And Jesus, of course, when he went to the wedding at Cana, turned gallons of water into what was the best quality wine. Because the guy leading the whole thing, the ceremony, said the best wine's been kept to last. Now, I don't think he would have said that if it was slightly watery Ribena stuff. I think Jesus produced pretty good wine. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, that was not seen as an awful thing to do. New wine in the Bible is a picture of joy and strength and even God's spirit. So wine doesn't get a negative press in the Bible per se. Just wine is bad. It's not like what is wrong is excessive drinking and drunkenness. And more precisely, why people go for that. Why do you drink excessively? Why do you give yourself over to it? It really is the issue that God's concerned with is the way in which it is used as a significant way of handling a lot of things. Handling fear handling trouble and problems, trying to find solace and cheer yourself up in it, or celebrating the only way to have a good time, instead of thanking God and rejoicing with him, just getting drunk and behaving, a way of badly, or a way of sort of overcoming the routine of life and the dullness and the drabness of life. All of those causes are not good. And actually, the reason they aren't 
is because God is the answer to those problems, not beer and wine and excess drinking. Don't lose yourself in alcohol. Find yourself in God is the Bible's message, Old and New Testament. Don't lose yourself in alcohol. Find yourself in God. That is the issue. And it's the issue Old and New Testament. Now we want to apply that a little bit to our lives and try and work our way into it. As we've already said, drunkenness, like most sin, has this apparent attractiveness that it's an answer. You know, this is going to solve this for you. This is going to be great. But very quickly, as that we read, it's, it bites like a snake. We read that in Proverbs. And as I remind, reminded you, that's true of all sin areas. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Eve thought, well, this is good. This is, is going to be good. It's going to make me wise. It's attractive. But it brought terrible destruction. Let's talk about the real answer. Can we put up Titus 3, verses 3 to 7? I love this passage. I hope you bear with me. I think it sums up the glories of the gospel. So let's just read. It's not quite the most common passage, but it's a great one here in Titus. Paul writes, he says, At one time, we too, all of us, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That's where we all are. None of us are holier than now. None of us are better than anybody else. That's where we started. Not everybody has a drink problem, but most people have some way that they're in some sort of bondage to passion and pleasure and deceived and enslaved. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That is the dilemma of men without God, women without God. That's the dilemma of our humanity. It's not all bad. We do not all do bad things all the time. That's never true. But there is this fundamental flaw that this is a characteristic often of men and women and society ultimately. But an answer came. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, now that is his way of writing about Jesus in this passage. Jesus is the kindness and love of God our Saviour appearing. So Jesus is going to bring an answer to every problem, every need, including this one we're talking about. He saved us. Jesus did. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. So the gospel is that God wants to save you from every aspect of sin, every aspect of your own wrongdoing, and that which has been done to you as well, actually. Every aspect of this sin-sick world, God has an answer in Jesus. He is our saviour, and he saves us not by our actions, but by his action, what Jesus did. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally, generously, I beg your pardon, through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, I know it's a bit wordy, but I love it, because what it's saying to you is this. Jesus died for you, not merely to forgive your sins, but that you might be washed clean and renewed by the Holy Spirit. You can have a life completely fresh start. And somewhere in this is the answer to every need that people try and satisfy with drink. Somewhere in this, there's the answer. The washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. 
Now that's where we're going to go in this good drinking. That's where we're going to go over the next 10 minutes or so. That actually the answer is that the Holy Spirit through Jesus has been poured out generously on all who follow him. And that meets the needs that any alcohol would try and meet. God is, has provided a far better answer than the best wine could ever provide. I'm serious. You might say, oh, you know. No. God's answers are far better and far more thorough than the best of wines. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You begin a life of inheriting everything Jesus has. It's, it's beyond understanding almost. We're justified by his grace, his free gift, and we inherit everything that Jesus is and has and have a hope of eternal life. Isn't that magnificent? That's the gospel. Now, if you truly get this, you will never need to turn to drink for any reason whatsoever. Now, I don't mean you will never drink an alcoholic beverage in any context. In, in context of good company and good food, it's very nice to have a good glass of wine. I don't have an attitude of teetotal. But you will never rely on it as a way of coping. It's not. Nor of celebrating. It's not. <laughs> there are other ways far more effective that we find in Christ. Amen? Let's just remind ourselves of a bit in John 7. If you could put that up. Jesus said this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. Let's leave that up for a moment. Just so that you fully understand this, when it was said, when Jesus said it, John said, actually, at that moment, it couldn't happen because Jesus hadn't yet been glorified. What's he mean? Jesus hadn't yet died, risen, and gone to the right hand of the Father in glory. In other words, what we read a few moments ago in Titus was not, as it were, complete. That whole thing couldn't quite happen at that historic moment. But it was prophetic about what was about to happen a short time afterwards. Now, for everybody in this room, it's historic. It's happened. Everything has happened for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything has happened for you to drink deeply of God's Spirit. What needs to happen? What needs to happen is Jesus needs to be glorified. What does that mean? Jesus needed to die for your sins. Jesus needed to rise again victoriously. Jesus needed to be received back into heaven and pour out the Holy Spirit. Amen? That has happened, hasn't it? That happened and the day of Pentecost was the the blast-off moment of the church where it happened and the Holy Spirit came. From now on, everything Jesus said there is almost literally, if you like, true. Anyone who is thirsty comes to him and in faith drinks from him. And out from you will flow rivers of living water. So now we can, as it says in Titus, 
be washed by rebirth and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Everything's happened that needs to happen. It's not on your side, it's on his side that things needed to happen. If there was a problem when Jesus said this, and there was in a way, when Jesus said it at that moment, there was a little bit of a problem that the people couldn't actually experience the fullness of what he said at that moment. The problem wasn't with people, it was with what he was doing. There was something that needed to be done. But as John writes, editing and making editorial comments, but now, of course, Jesus is glorified, so those who believe can receive. Hallelujah. That's good news. So with that in our ears, let's look at the last passage I want to look at. This is Ephesians 5, if you could pop that up, verses 18 to 20. So now, for Christians, for people who are following Jesus, for people who want to follow Jesus, Paul writes this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Or actually, as many of you will know, it means go on being filled with the Spirit. It's a continuous tense. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, go on being filled with the Spirit. Now, the word instead is there for a reason. It's there in the original, and it's a word, like it is in English, which is a link word, which suggests a comparison and a contrast. In other words, there is a deliberate Holy Spirit, God-given link. Don't get drunk in wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It is not, these verses are not about drunkenness particularly. They're not like an exhortation to behave well. They are about the fact that God has provided something else where drunkenness might once have been, but that something else has none of the negative downsides of drunkenness. If you think I'm making this up or I'm a charismatic and a bit nutty, I could spend quite a bit of time, I'm not going to because of time, reading to you two commentaries, one by Professor F.F. Bruce, who was brethren in his origin, but was professor of theology at Manchester University. He's since died and gone to heaven. His commentary on Ephesians. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a very powerful evangelical preacher in Westminster Chapel in the 50s and 60s, who's also died and gone to heaven. And in both of their commentaries on Ephesians 5 and these verses, they go to considerable lengths, a couple of paragraphs, to explain that there is a reason why these verses are written like they do. That in my words, but they will say it in a more erudite way, that there is a deliberate link by God between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. There is a deliberate link. There is a contrast and a comparison. It is an antithesis, a contrast marked by parallels. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the startling phraseology of verse 18 is to show that there is, in some respects, a similarity between the two states, being drunk and filled with the Spirit. He goes on to say, we cannot get a true conception of the Christian life unless we bear the element of similarity in mind as well as the element of contrast. How beautifully put by the dear old doctor. Listen, 
I wonder if you heard me. We cannot get a true conception of the Christian life unless we bear the element of similarity in mind as well as the element of contrast. You don't really understand the benefits of being a Christian unless you understand that sometimes it will be similar to being drunk. Not necessarily that you will roll roll around the floor in an inebriated state, though that isn't a problem if it's in the spirit, but I'm not talking about people just doing something superficial. There is a more profound parallel here that drunkenness will bring joy right in the midst of trouble. Drunkenness will answer your need to be bold and lose your inhibitions. Sorry, the Holy Spirit will answer your need to be bold and lose your inhibitions. The Holy Spirit will give you courage where you had no courage. The Holy Spirit will lift your spirits when everything else would depress your spirits. When people would say, oh, come on, have a drink, cheer up. You get filled with the Spirit and that will do it far more and far more effectively. And actually, as it says here in Ephesians 5, one of the consequences of being filled with the Spirit is that you, out of your mouth, and I don't think it's an accident that it's like that, will come psalms and hymns and songs. You'll make music in your heart, but you'll also give thanks, which I think you'll probably do with your mouth. There is something in your demeanor when you're filled with the Spirit that is not unlike when you've perhaps a little merry with drink. Now, I don't think that means everybody... I don't know if you've watched drunk people. Probably none of you have ever seen anybody drunk. No, I'm joking. But actually, not everybody behaves the same when they're drunk. Some people, it depends on their mood, it depends on their character. Some people are aggressive and loud. Some people go depressed and quiet. Some people get very talkative. Some people go quiet, as I said. So people, it, it, and I think it's the same with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit doesn't, being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you all behave in exactly the same way. To show we're all filled with the Spirit, we all need to laugh and wave our hands in the air. No. But something will be different about you. And people will know, you know if someone's a bit drunk. Well, I hope you do. And you should know people are filled with spirit. There's something different. There's something registers. You know, when they were on the day of Pentecost, they came out of the upper room and they were speaking in tongues. But actually the languages were languages of people who could recognize what they were saying. So like our equivalent to French, German and Italian or something. They could hear what they were saying. And they said, oh, they're drunk. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes the point, not John Groves, though I agree with it. He said, you would not obviously call a bunch of people speaking in another language drunk. You would not immediately call them drunk unless there was something about their manner and demeanor that gave you... So they came out shouting out the praises of God. They spilled out of the room, bubbling over with joy. And they began to declare in tongues all the great things God had done for them. And there were people of other languages all around who said, hey, they're talking in my language. But some people said, oh, that's a load of drunks. Because there was a joy about them. There was an abandon. There was a boldness. Normal people don't do that. They don't start shouting about God. You don't go out in the middle of the... Perhaps we're all going to try that. That's what we have. How about this at the end? We'll all go out there, get filled with the Spirit, and go out there like a bunch of drunks in amongst the farmer's market. How about, how about behaving like a lot of... Yeah, you don't know what I might get you do, Dad. No, I can't make you do it. If you do do it, that'd be nice. You get, I mean, if, you, if you've drunk too much and you've gone to a football match, like you were an Arsenal supporter and they've won, if you've ever seen that, I've seen that as well. Huh? And 
you know they've won. They're all singing, Arsenal, Arsenal. And you think, oh my goodness. Now, I don't want us to be like that. But on the other hand, we could be a bit more vocal about Jesus, couldn't we? We could be a little less embarrassed to support Jesus. We could be a little bolder about Jesus. You know, let's go and sing about Jesus in the marketplace. And that's one of the effects of being filled with the Spirit. There are parallels as well as contrasts. Obviously, you don't want and you don't get all the negative effects which we've already talked about drunkenness. But there are some parallels. You know, the word drunk here in Isaiah, in Ephesians 5, it's literally the word soak in Greek. Don't get soaked with wine, get filled with the Spirit. You could argue, don't get soaked with wine, get soaked in the Spirit. There is a sense in which, in order to get drunk, you you probably knew this, but in order to get drunk, you need to drink a lot. You don't, it's not cough medicine. You don't just take a little sip. Now, the Holy Spirit is the same. You need to drink deeply. It's no good a five-minute little occasional, you come on, drink. Get soaked in Jesus. Get a little more reckless, for goodness sake. For goodness sake. You know, go for it a bit more. You've got to get drunk, you've got to go for it. It's no good having a sip, half a bottle of Becks or something. You need about six pints. For goodness sake, you're going to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to have some abandon to God. You've got to have some, I don't care, I want loads of it. That's how you get drunk, that's how you get filled with the Spirit. Much safer. I want lots of it. I'm not having a little sip. I want to be soaked with Jesus. When you get drunk, you throw caution to the winds. It's a sad thing, actually, as I've already hinted at. People lose their dignity, they lose their virginity, they lose their honour, they lose their money when they get drunk. But when you get filled with the Spirit, all of that's safe, but there's also a boldness, an abandonment. Maybe it does touch your money sometimes. I don't really care so much. The Lord's my provider. I've just lost my job. Hey, who cares? Jesus is with me. I mean, in a way, it's that sort of parallel that the Bible's talking about because you're filled with the Spirit and you're going for God. Drunkenness makes people energetic and happy sometimes. That's one of the appeals. People are hoping it will happen to them. It's not always guaranteed because I think your mood is just heightened by alcohol. And so if you're depressed or aggressive, you just might get more depressed and more aggressive. But in a sort of unpredictable way, it generally can make people for a short time feel happier and more energetic. Being filled with the Spirit has far more effect to give us a zeal and a passion for God's things, to give us a joy A joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings joy. So, don't do it for me. Well, you're not filled with the Spirit then. It's like, oh, I'm not, I don't know what people see in alcohol. Well, have about six pints and you'll find out. And it's not very nice, perhaps, but you might be thrown up as well. But I've got something better for you. You need to be filled with the Spirit. Well, I'll try a little sip. Well, start with a sip and then get further in. There is a joy in God which is yours through the Holy Spirit. 
And that joy is manifest. I believe Ephesians reflects it. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Singing and making music in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A drunken person is under the influence of drink. That means everything they do is affected by their drunkenness. They're not safe, actually. They're not safe driving a car. They're not safe doing work, working with machinery. They're not safe making decisions, all sorts of things. Well, when we're filled with the Spirit, everything is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and that is very good. We drive the car, hopefully better. Hopefully you're better at work. Hopefully you make better decisions, godly decisions, because you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit in all that you do. Being filled with the Spirit will affect everything. It affects how you behave towards your loved ones, towards your colleagues. That's why in Ephesians 5 and 6, we go on to look at family and parents and husbands and wives and workers and employers, because that is the Spirit-filled life. It's not about laws and rules, it's about the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you will be more Jesus-like in every area of your life. Because Jesus is the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Jesus. It's one trinity. And, and the Holy Spirit will change you to be like Jesus, who was anointed with the oil of joy above all others, and who always knew how to react to needy people, proud people, high people, low people. You'd be like Jesus, a Spirit-filled person is going to be more and more like Jesus. Sounds good to me. Do you know what? I want to go on being filled with the Spirit. Do you? I want it. 